Hi, I'm Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you'll find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen listen for for the the word. word. Hi, everybody, and welcome to our podcast today. And today we are still working through Luke. We're in Luke 14, verses 25 through 33. And uh, this is really continuing on that journey to Jerusalem we've been working with and uh, really this whole idea of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So Alan has a lot for us. There's a lot of, uh, a lot of depth in this passage. Thanks, Christy. Yeah, um, you know, I've, I've mentioned before when we've dealt with sort of the, the, the way Jesus defines discipleship in Luke that um, there was much more to come, and we're getting into the thick of it now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this passage really gets into the thick of, of how Jesus defines discipleship, and um, it's very countercultural even today. And so it's hard for us to hear, I think. But I think it's important for us to see, you know, again, that the primary theme in this section of Luke's mm-hmm. gospel is that Jesus is is talking about what it means to follow him in discipleship. Mm-hmm. And, and Jesus makes some statements here, right. no doubt, that may seem startling. But when we review the way Luke shapes the discussion of discipleship leading up to this, I think what we find here is a summing up of the challenges Jesus has already presented mm-hmm. to those who would follow him. Mm-hmm. Um, so... I guess, really, how, how does it begin? Yeah, so our passage begins just with a change of scene. Um, mm-hmm. As we mentioned last week, um, all of Luke 14, 1 through 24 occurs at a meal at the leader of the Pharisees' house. Right. And so now, um, Luke says, large crowds were traveling with him. So we're back, basically, on the road to, to the journey. You know, we're back on the road to Jerusalem. Um, and... Again, you know, this I've talked about how it's a kind of an extended sermon on the way to Jerusalem, mm-hmm. or it's really a matter of really defining what commitment to follow Jesus you know, and seek the kingdom of God looks like over against other commitments that one might have. Right. I'm finding this kind of an interesting um, that there's this journey feel to it, and mm-hmm. yet we're talking about following Jesus. It kind of. Is that, is that I think intentional? That's a, I, yes, I think that is a it's a, it's a, a narrative device used in the ancient world, and that Luke picks this up as mm-hmm. a means of of you know conveying a lesson, basically mm-hmm. conveying an idea, yeah, and, and yeah. or ideas. Uh, you know, I think that was a that was a, a a narrative convention in the ancient world, and so again, Jesus is 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 talking about what commitment to following him and seeking the kingdom looks like over against other commitments like family, possessions, mm-hmm. and social status. And and in Luke's gospel, these other commitments constitute obstacles to discipleship. And we're going to see Jesus says three times that those who place these commitments ahead of the kingdom of God cannot be my disciple. Mm-hmm. That's probably the most strongly worded you know, demand of, of what it means to be a disciple in the whole gospel tradition mm-hmm. is what we find here yeah. in this passage. Yeah, yeah. I'm, 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 I'm finding this fascinating again, kind of going on the theme of this movement because these other things kind of reflect not movement. You know, sure. they kind of sure. they kind of leave you so you can't follow, right? Mm-hmm. You can't physically follow when you're bound by all these things. Anyway, there's a lot of yeah. imagery Surely. that comes Absolutely. through here. Absolutely, yeah, I, I think that's right. Now we can't. I think we also should should 
remind ourselves once again that even before Jesus embarked on this journey, he announced to his disciples that it would end with his rejection and death. So we can't forget that this journey is to Jerusalem, which Jesus has already identified in Luke 13, 34 as the city that kills the prophets. And so that shadow of of his eventual death also is cast over this whole journey. Right, of course. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, we're we're, we're familiar, so for example, in, in Matthew and Mark, we have this passion prediction where Jesus says he's going to Jerusalem, he's going to die. And then he says, and so you must take up your cross. In a sense, that's kind of what the whole journey to Jerusalem in Luke's gospel Mm -hmm. is about. It's an extended sort of treatment of what it looks like to take up your cross and follow Jesus. I'm finding it, I'm finding it really, as we talk, just really brilliant too. I mean, you know what I'm thinking of when I would follow someone on a journey, it's going to go somewhere exciting like Disneyland and we're going to go have fun. And these people are, are passionate enough about following him, at least initially, that they want to be on. They want to be part of this group. Mm-hmm. The, the The promise is great, and so what an interesting place because the destination really doesn't end up. And I think it fits well, with that. I mean, it ends up to be, uh, uh, if you will, this this crucifixion, right? Right. So right. What a what a heavy space to end up in, and Surely. I think this kind of fits with. Then look, you think this is going to be fun? This isn't a fun journey. This is a yeah. This takes a lot of com- commitment. Well, and I would say that w- if, we're th- if we're thinking about the the ones who are f- actually following Jesus during his ministry, you know, it's very likely that most of them really didn't understand the fullness of what Jesus oh, was I'm trying sure. to say. You yeah. know, I mean, we saw that we saw that um, misunderstanding motif very strongly brought out in Mark's gospel. Luke doesn't bring it out quite as much, but it it's there as well, and and so. Uh, you know, they, they, I think they had their own expectations about what would happen in Jerusalem, and, and maybe they, were, they, it was, they had a hard time hearing some of the really edgy things that Jesus was trying to convey mm-hmm. to them. Yeah, you know? yeah, I'm sure. So now, in, in, in all of that setting, basically, Jesus makes what seems to be, to us, I think, a starting declaration. Whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even life itself, cannot be my disciple. It's really harsh. I mean, it's one of the hardest sayings of Jesus ever, Mm -hmm. you know, really. We've come across some things that have already been pretty challenging to us, but this one really tops tops them all. The thing that came to me when I read it was, you know, this word hate. And is it... Is it you being used the way that I would understand it? Right. And is it a good definition for what you read in the Greek? Well, it is a good definition for what you read in the Greek. I think, you know, the word is miseo, and it just means to hate someone. I think, though, that what we're seeing here is that Jesus in Luke is using the word not necessarily for, uh, you know, the, the, the resentment that one has for an enemy or something like that, but rather, um, you know, it, it's more of um, shifting one's allegiance from normal family and other mm-hmm. social ties to the kingdom of God. So it's, it's really more of, 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 you know, Matthew has a, has a, has a parallel. It says it a little, little softer um, that, uh, you know, he says um, um, that whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy in me. Whoever right, loves right. son or daughter more than me but is not worthy in me. I think there's me. something about that. 
You know, it's one of those interesting translation issues to me because mm -hmm. you talk about, oh, it's a good translation of the Greek, and yet because the sentiment does not come through, is it is it really a good translation? Does someone I think else it use is. something else? I think it is. I think it is. I think I think it's. I think the translators are right to leave the word as is, but I think it's left to the teacher or the preacher or whoever's doing the interpreting to help people understand. Jesus that it doesn't mean saying, what it means. I mean, do you see where I'm going? Right, right. I, he's not. He's not saying. He's not saying he wants people to literally hate their family. He's really talking. He's talking about allegiances, and he's talking right. about where does your allegiance right. lie? I, I'm just. I'm. I'm pushing at this because I think this is one of the challenges with, with translation. Surely, wouldn't it be better to then remove it from the more, um, to 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 get a contextual one that makes more sense than it does a literal one. There, there are times when you can't put all that into the translation. That's what I would, that's my answer. There are yeah. just times when you can't put everything you need to into the translation. Does, and this is one of those times when the text needs, trans, needs interpretation. Right. The translation is a good one. I think what we're, what we're left to do then is with the task of interpretation and to help people understand Jesus doesn't necessarily want you to hate your family. It's a matter of your allegiance to Christ and to the kingdom of God has to be the primary allegiance in your life, not your allegiance to your family. And, and you know, I think we under, have to understand, I mean, you know, for us, commitment to family is, is, is huge. I mean, for them, commitment to family was everything. I mean, right. that was, your identity was completely wrapped right. up in your, in right. your, in, yeah. in your family. Yeah. And so, so, you know, I, I think, I think the harshness of the word hate is, it sort of reflects how difficult it would be for people to shift their allegiance, right. their primary allegiance from family to the kingdom of God. Right, right. I, I understand 100%. It makes sense the way you're saying it. I'm not saying that it's not correct. In yeah. fact, it probably is correct. But I do think this causes challenges oh, because of it does. the word hate, as we understand the translation I of know. it, does not fit what this means. And so and that's a real problem. For example, in a passage like this, if I'm not preaching on this passage and I'm not going to help people understand what this is about, I'm not going to read this in, in worship. Right. Well, I agree. I right? agree. You would, you have to go in it and, yes. and make people understand yes. it. Right. Um, uh, what, before we head on to the next part, I do. I am curious. Does anyone else try to use a different kind of translation here to get away from this? So, contemporary English version, which is the successor of today's English version of the Good right. News Bible, says, "Unless you love, you cannot be my disciple unless you love me more than you love your father and mother." So they, they, but, but it's a children's Bible, right? Uh, right. It's right. meant for like sixth grade and below, I think. So that makes sense that they would do that. The good news, the good news translation, actually, that, that I mean, that apparently the today's English version or the good news translation right. back in the right. 60s, they mm -hmm. also did the same thing. Okay. So, but again, it was meant, you know, for someone, for someone young. It, Gene Peterson in the message says, refuses to let go of father, mother, spouse, children, brothers, and sisters. Mm. So he softens it a bit there, let mm -hmm. go of them. In IR, the New International Readers version, which is a children's version, says "hate." By the way, well, which is interesting. Interesting, yeah. yeah. As does the NIV. Yeah. No, it's a very the New Living Translation does it this way. I think this is this is probably the best uh, adaptation I've seen. If you want to be my disciple, you must, by comparison, hate everyone else. 
your father, mother, wife, children, and brothers and sisters. Oh, I like that. Because it, it keeps it keeps the word hate, but it, it gives you a clue that there's something going on. Oh, yeah. I yeah. actually like yeah. that. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. So, you know... I, I, and I, I, I'm, I would be willing to go with a translation like that. I, I, I don't really care much for the way the, the, t, the today's English version, the Good News translation, and the, and this contemporary English version does it because it's, it, it really does soften it more than is really appropriate. I think for Luke's gospel, Luke's sure. gospel is well, edgy and true. it's intended to be that's, edgy. That's true. That yeah. that's true. Yeah. Well, very interesting. Thank you for. <laughs> for for letting me kind of explore that a little bit because it was something I circled. No, right? and and I'm sure everybody who reads this passage gets stumped right. by it. Well, and then you go look at the Greek like I do, and then it's like, well, it just says hate. But then yep. I'm like, ah, oh, that's a that problem does, the, for me because so the, so the meaning of the word isn't going to help you. The meaning of the word doesn't help me because to me it's it's just it's it's. It doesn't actually show the whole meaning of the text. Right. And so it just really, as you and said, just really has to be interpreted. And so here, here it's the literary context of Luke's gospel that right. informs this. Here it's, it's what, we'd call, what we'd call the pragmatics, the situation. Right. Jesus is trying to help his disciples understand what the commitment to follow him right. and to align their lives right. with the kingdom really means right. in terms of, you know, where the rubber hits, hits the road. Right, right. right. And, so, and, and, and so, you know, it, it, and it does affect their other commitments. Well, you know, the literalist groups, as we'll talk about in the Reformation, say, oh, well, then you have to, you know, not have any allegiance to family right. at all, right. and you need to leave them all behind, and, and, and so problems have come out of this Surely. very literal kind of Surely. understanding. So anyway, we'll get there later, but let's let's move on here with uh, our, next, uh, our next point. Yeah, and you know, one of the reasons why I I want to leave the the translation as it is is because while it seems like a startling demand, it's not unique in Luke's gospel. True. Luke's gospel has prepared us for this, right? Mm -hmm. We've already seen that when Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him, Jesus himself declared that my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Now, we may remember this from Mark's gospel. Mm -hmm. This is different in Luke's gospel. His mother and brothers are just coming to see him. It's not like in Mark's gospel where they right. think he's lost his yeah, senses right. and they're coming <laughs> to retrieve him and save him from himself. Right. In Luke's gospel, it's just Jesus' mother and brothers have come to see him, and he just says to the people he's teaching, well, my mother and brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. So he's mm -hmm. already indicating for himself a shift in his own personal allegiance mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. the kingdom of God. Uh, we've also seen how Jesus' call to follow him in discipleship takes precedence over family and even the duty to see to the burial of one's father when we looked at the, the three would-be disciples in Luke chapter mm -hmm. 9, verses 59 and 62. And finally, we have Jesus' warning that we looked at just a few weeks ago that those who follow the kingdom of God can expect opposition from within their own household. You know, he said that, right. you know, that people within their old households would be turned against right, one another. Right. And so we've already seen something of this um, situation with um, the, the family as it relates to the commitment to the kingdom of God and, mm -hmm. and the challenge that's going to pose. Right. So in a way, then, this statement that is so starting to us really just sums up the implications of the decision to align one's life with the kingdom of God for one's family ties, right? And mm -hmm. And... Given the situation of the early Christian community implied in the New Testament, I think it's safe to say that some, if not many, in Luke's community had been alienated from their families because of their faith in Jesus. And they had already experienced this. So so this right, would have been right. something that was not so foreign to them. They would have yeah, they a, a, might have well, been hated by their families. A, a, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. There's there's all kinds of 
problems, if you will, in following Jesus, who's mm-hmm. being looked as an outcast. You want to look like an upright person and follow the, you know, follow the Jewish leadership, and they don't like him. And there's lots of issues. Well, and this was not only something in the Jewish world where the synagogue and the Christian church broke from one another and, and they right. were really kind of bitter enemies with one another. It was also in the Greco-Roman oh, world where, where sacrificing to the gods was, you know, a signal of one's allegiance. Yeah. And it was, it was just basically a, a way of demonstrating that you were a, a good patriotic right. Roman or Greek. Right. And, and as well, I mean, um, many of these people, um, their trades had patron deities. And if you right. were going to be right. in the trade guild, you had to sacrifice to that deity. So people right. lost their livelihoods as well. Although I do know that, we can take this out. I do know that the that at least in um, Judea, they had, the the Romans allowed the Jews not to, not to give to the, to the emperor. To the right. emperor. Right. 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 Yeah. Right. They had some, right. they, they, they weren't, they weren't bound by the same right. ways that the right. Greek, that the Roman citizens were. But in the, in the Greek and Roman world, I mean, in the world, people who, absolutely. who committed, who converted right. to Christ could very likely would have lost family ties. Over, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yep. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Now it's important to note that in Luke's version of this statement, Jesus goes on to include hating even life itself. And I find myself in agreement with Joel Green in his commentary on the Gospel of Luke when he understands that hate this this hating of one's own life or self, and, and the word is suke here, but it really refers to the whole person. Um, um, and he understands this hating of one's life or self in terms of the call to deny oneself in Luke 9.23 that we've already seen. Jesus talks about his death, and he said, those who would come after me must mm-hmm. deny themselves, right. take up their cross daily in Luke's gospel, and follow me. Mm-hmm. And so in light of that previous statement, and then the present one here in Luke 14.26, where you know you can't be my disciple unless you hate your mother and father and sister and brothers and children and wife, and even your own life, Green, Green understands that hating even life itself is a call to prioritize one's allegiance to the kingdom of God over family and other social ties right. that would have essentially defined one's identity right, right. or self in that day. Right. And I think this contributes also to that idea of hating one's family. The idea is, where is your identity grounded right. in? And I think this actually softens the first time we hit the word hate because people are like, well, but I'm programmed to like self. I mean, mm-hmm. that's, I'm, that's mm-hmm. where my identity is. Although, and, and I don't think Jesus is saying you have to be self-destructive to be a, a follower of Christ, you know, but as we will see in the Roman Catholic tradition, of course, I that's know. going to lose to really lead to hating your existence, hating your body. Self-flagellation. Exactly. And so, that is not what this is about. This is about how you identify yourself. Where, 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 where do you ground your identity? Right. Is it grounded in your family and the other social ties that would have been the essential definition of oneself mm-hmm. in that day and time? Or do you ground yourself and your identity in the kingdom of God, in the message and the, and the values that Jesus is advocating? Right. Yeah. Right. And so that's the, that's the point of all of this. Okay. Yeah. Now, Jesus follows with a statement that sounds more familiar to us, but has a sharper edge than we're used to. Whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple, in Mm -hmm. verse 27. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Now, we're familiar with this because most of us know of the call to discipleship Jesus gave after his first passion prediction in Luke 9, 23. If anyone wishes to come after me, let them deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Mm -hmm. And so the way in which Luke renders this saying with the present tense verse, 
verbs um, uh, in, in verse 27, you carry the cross and follow me. They're both present tense verbs. Mm. Very likely underlines that emphasis that we hear only in Luke's gospel. Only Luke adds to that call in Luke 9.23 that you have to deny oneself and take up your cross daily. Mm-hmm. Right? And so this, I think this statement sort of reinforces that idea that, that carrying the cross is then a metaphor for discipleship and refers to the willingness not only to identify with Jesus in his dishonorable suffering, because, you know, although the disciples probably aren't really aware of this at the time, right. later Christians obviously were, and, right. and, and to identify themselves with Christ was to identify themselves with someone who yeah. died a shameful death. Right, right, right. But this was basically intentional. You know, carrying the cross was an intentional act in order to subvert the current world system defined by honor, shame, clean and unclean, and the onerous burden of reciprocal obligation. And mm-hmm. and so discipleship then, again, once again, it's about aligning one's life with the release of God's kingdom rather than with the oppressive systems of debts and reciprocity that define the kingdoms of this world. So it fits within the context of what Luke has been doing. This isn't bizarre or or new, but it is... It, it is, is a little bit edgier. It's mm-hmm. like it's like the closer we get, the edgier it gets. It's like yeah. look, whoever does not commit to this kind of life cannot be my disciple. Right? That's, yeah. There's the edge. Yeah. There's yeah. the edge. Okay. Yeah, right. Now, so a couple of observations on these two startling demands. I think we should we should note. Uh, first, the invitation to discipleship is still wide open. Jesus addresses his call to discipleship, not to the 12 alone, and certainly not to some special group that may, may be set apart from normal discipleship by their extraordinary commitment, and contrary to what the monastic tradition, uh, right, would, would, right. Would, how they would read yes, this. Yes. But rather, Jesus addresses this call to whoever, and we should, we should hear that word, whoever, now, he does follow it up with does not, right? So it's a negative, but it's right. still whoever. And so it's clear then, I think, that in Luke's gospel, these challenging statements don't apply to some special right. uh, level of Christian faith, but rather these apply to the normal Christian life. Yeah, yeah. Secondly, then, I would say the emphasis is not just on the cost of discipleship. It is on the cost of discipleship, but not just on the cost of discipleship, because here Jesus is talking about the consequences of not being willing to step up to the commitment that that the kingdom of God really demands. Right, right. And so... And we see that, I think, because only Luke words the consequence of not making allegiance to the kingdom of God, the commitment that defines one's life, by saying that those who fail to do so cannot be my disciple. Wow. Yeah. And, of course, he repeats that three three times right. in this right. context, in, in, in Luke 14, 26, and in verse 27, and then later in verse 23. Right. It's the same words cannot be my disciple right yeah. right and so it's 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 not just the cost it's more the consequence of not being willing to uh, make the commitment of aligning one's life and defining one's very identity by right. uh, the kingdom of god right yeah I, I i i keep thinking of yeah all the people that that will say lip service but they aren't really following that still are are hoarding on to other things mm-hmm. um in my as I as I read this, you know, I keep thinking of yeah, well, these people then they have to be perfect, but I don't think that's what he's no, saying at all. No, uh, no. But I do think it's the intentional not trying to go in full, you know, the intentionality mm-hmm. of not really following. Well, I think the point of this is that that the commitment to following Jesus as a as a disciple um, basically demands 
a total shift in one's identity. Right. It's, it's a life, it's a way of life. Yes, yes. It's not yeah. just a, well, you know, I'm a Christian because I was born in the United States. I was a Christian because I was brought up in the church. This is a total way of life, a total orientation of one's life right. toward the kingdom of God, toward the values of the kingdom of God, toward the message that Jesus preached, toward the pattern that Jesus lived out, you know. Right. And and so I, I think the reason, that's the reason why it's so edgy is because, you know, that is, again, that is a very difficult demand for any of us mm-hmm. to fulfill. Mm-hmm. And we can talk about that later. I mean, right. none of us fulfills this perfectly. But yet I think we need to he- have these words to 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 draw us mm-hmm. deeper into discipleship. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. So then this second point about the consequence of not making one's allegiance to the kingdom of God, that a commi- the commitment that defines one's life, is reinforced by the twin parables of the tower and the king mm-hmm. contemplating war. Just as it is foolish to begin building a tire- tower, likely for a garden or a vineyard, without making sure that one has sufficient resources, so it is foolish to attempt discipleship without understanding the full implications as laid out so bluntly in this text. Mm-hmm. And just as it is disastrous for a king to court a war with another king without making sure he's able to ensure victory, because the end result is that he will have to surrender, Mm -hmm. which is the implication of asking for the terms of peace. So it is simply impossible to follow Jesus in discipleship without embracing the demands Jesus not only makes of his disciples, but also models in his own commitment to the kingdom. Mm -hmm. You know, he's calling them to, to, to lay down their lives, and he's going to do it Literally. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, and then we move on then to... Um, <laughs> yeah, we go from the frying pan into the fire, so to speak. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, so we go on to the statement that um, none of you can become my disciple if you do not give up all your possessions, right? Right. And this, you know, at first glance might appear to be a third condition for discipleship, but there is reason to believe that it actually sums up everything I think so. that Jesus has mm-hmm. said about what it means to follow him by aligning one's life with the kingdom of God up to this point. First of all, Jesus introduces this demand with therefore, right, which points to yep. the idea that this is a kind of conclusion to what proceeds. But second, Jesus changes the terms of the demand here. Instead of whoever, Jesus says, none of you can become my disciple if right. you do not give up all your possessions. So I think Jesus here is stepping up the demand of discipleship mm-hmm. and stepping up what it means to align one's life what with the kingdom of God. What an interesting um, use of though, whoever it's open to everybody, mm-hmm. but it's open to nobody. I mean, it's right? kind of right, right. I mean, it's kind of like, look, you're all welcome. And he's got this whole group of followers, but you can't just follow me casually. And, and, I, and I think that I think part of the point of this is it's open to everybody. Whoever, whoever is willing to, to commit right. is can follow me, but nobody can do it in their own strength. Nobody right. can do it yeah. on their own. Yeah, I, yeah. yeah. Th- I think that's I think that's where I was mentally headed, and that's yeah. that's that's really yeah. good theology, right? Yeah, yeah so. I would agree. I would agree. So then, Jesus' call to follow him means not only that one must count allegiance to the kingdom before one's family and one's social standing, but more than that, those who would become Jesus' disciples must quote unquote give up all one's possessions. And the verb translated give up is apotasso, which normally means to say farewell in the New Testament. There are about six or eight uses in all, but here it's used to say farewell. Here it means to renounce. Now, I will note that this is this the same verb used in Luke 9.61, where the would-be disciple asked to say farewell to his family mm-hmm. before following right. Jesus, right? 
Um, so that, I think that's an interesting uh, uh, just coincidence, maybe, maybe not a coincidence. But again, as we've seen before, Luke uses the participle of huparko for possessions. I think, though, here it's preferable to translate it as all one has. Oh, I like that better. I like that better. Yeah. That makes sense. Possessions too. sounds too specific. Mm-hmm. I think I think I think the idea here is the totality of the claim, mm-hmm. and I like the way and the King James version, the American Standard Version, the Revised Standard Version, and some of the older translations, and then the English Standard Version, which is a more contemporary translation. They follow that, and I find it interesting that Gene Peterson in the Message translation renders this: "What is dearest to you?" Mm. But again, I think it's I think it's this sort of all-encompassing thing: all one has, because I think giving up all one has in order to shape one's whole identity around the kingdom of God seems to be a corollary of denying or hating one's life, Mm -hmm. as we've seen before in Luke's gospel. Right. Yeah. So again, in our context, we want to see this as something we might have to do under extraordinary circumstances. But Jesus has made it clear already in Luke's gospel that this is a characteristic feature of discipleship. In light of all that's followed, I think we now see that leaving everything to follow Jesus is not only expected of the twelve, but also all who would be his disciples. We saw that um, Peter, James, and John left everything and followed him. And then shortly after that, in in Luke chapter 5, Levi, or Matthew, Mm -hmm. left everything and followed him. Uh, We've also seen already that one's possessions may constitute an obstacle to discipleship in the parable of the the seed in various soils, um, where Jesus interprets the seed that was choked by thorns as those who are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. Mm -hmm. And so again, it's impossible to bear the fruit of discipleship if one is choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life. Mm -hmm. Yep. When Jesus and then when Jesus issues the call to discipleship following his first passion prediction in Luke 9:23 he he goes on in the next verse to make the choice plain he says those who want to save their life will lose, lose it, it and those who lose their life for my sake will save it and again i think all of this sort of reinforces that idea that that Jesus is calling for basically um, a willingness to give up all that one has. Basically, you're 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 surrendering all of life, right? Uh, a, 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 in in order to shape your whole fundamental identity right. around this basic kingdom commitment to the kingdom. Yeah, yeah. And and, and that is key, crucial to being a disciple of Christ. Yeah, and it's I mean it's awesome. And, you know, and I will maybe talk about at the end of our podcast oh, yeah. possibly. You know, what does oh, that think, really mean? I think we you need know? to because there are, there's some real question well, marks there's here. some real yeah. question marks there and and yet i think all of us have someone in mind that we feel really does fulfill this and mm. even though we could say oh but they're still human you know so I, absolutely i'm kind of I, i'm excited to approach that but yeah. yet you know you think about that or you think about the things that you still hang on to and right. and uh that's also and how that how that cripples you from it does. yeah it yeah does. yeah so let's move on to the la- i actually love the last parts that we added so yeah and the revised common lectionary doesn't include verses 34 and 35 uh, but they really do form the conclusion to the passage um, disciples who are not willing to align their lives with god's kingdom and therefore redefine their whole identity on the basis of kingdom values and principles are as useless as salt that has become tasteless mm-hmm. luke says or jesus says in luke uh, whether and whether or not it's actually possible for salt to lose its chemical properties, which some would, would debate, is beside the point. Really, the point is that those who are not willing to engage in the all-encompassing transformation of all of life that discipleship entails simply are not disciples of Jesus. Mm. And to underline the serious nature 
what, the serious nature of what he is saying, Jesus adds, let anyone with ears to hear Listen. Listen. This is a significant phrase in the New Testament, Mm -hmm. and it only occurs a few times on the lips of Jesus and in the book of Revelation. And one of the times it occurs is at the conclusion of Jesus telling the parable of the seed in the soils, (laughs) which is connected here. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's interesting, right? Yeah. 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 All right. Thank you. Hi, friends. We're back, and we're going to let Christy take a turn in uh, leading us through how the Reformed folks um, treated this passage. So tell us what you found, Christy. Sure, sure. And Today I really looked at Calvin's commentaries. I looked at some Reformation commentaries and a, a little bit of secondary stuff. But um, the question um, for the Reformed era folks is that there, uh, folks, is from this is what does it mean to be a follower of Christ? So we kind that of address makes sense. That. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I think they're on track there. Yeah. And and then of course the the challenge here is there's a tradition on emphasizing grace, and this passage seems oriented towards doing. Yeah. Um, and it is perhaps no surprise that in our ma- our mainline reformers tend to play down this passage. We do not find it even referenced in the institutes. I'm not surprised at that because the rev- the institutes are really more of a pastoral theology mm-hmm. and and I can I'm not surprised that Calvin couldn't find a way to work this in yeah, to that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so when the magisterial reformers that's your Luther, um, Calvin, etc., reformers are looking at their relationship to God through the lens of love, this is actually really harsh. It does. Well, and, I mean a friend for us. I mm-hmm. mean we we talked about that, right? right, right. <laughs> we use the word edgy, but I mean right. harsh is harsh could be an apt word exactly. for Exactly. Well. And so, but it perhaps is no surprise that our radical reformers find great strength and purpose in this passage. Yeah. So, um, they, they have, I think, you know, in some respects, that, that tradition has always had a tendency to take the Bible too literally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It absolutely has. And um, they find this to be, well, and I think they find it also to be when they've made these really. 16th century radical steps that it gives them strength to believe that the steps has been have been inappropriately in following Christ mm-hmm. and their martyrdoms which really yeah. was a thing right. was, was was not in vain right um right. and so it it becomes a really kind of a rallying mm-hmm. a, a rallying passage for these yeah, folks that makes sense so um anyway just to give you some of the ideas Johannes Brands um claimed that this was um Passages being taught in order to inform the multitude of followers who saw Jesus as a Jewish Messiah, because obviously there were people probably following it with that mm-hmm. belief, and that that would be a very physical improvement of their lives. Um, so um, Jesus did not mind that they followed, but wanted to be clear what it really meant to be a disciple of Christ. So sure. kind of making that comment of, you're following me now, but you don't really understand right. what it means to follow me. I would agree with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then Calvin, um, and he does, he, he says, look, don't take this too literally, and says that all human relationships should be uh, should be secondary to piety and the love of Christ. But um, I would agree with that. Yeah, statement. You know, yeah. that, that all human relationships should be secondary to, to Christ. They yeah. are inferior, if you will, to a life in Christ. Yeah. And he, he reminds us that all true follow, followers are bound to the cross but then in confronting this, the challenges of this, we are tied to Christ. 
Yeah, you know when I when I read, you know, you know that he say, he says not to take it too literally, but I I want to say methinks the man protesteth too much because you know he really does get at some of the heart of what we were talking does. about. Yeah. I think, but but what he is responding to is the 16th century tendency of the Roman Catholic right. Church to this whole kind of physical asceticism and or what the uh, the the radicals are doing, which is right. like the other side of it. Yeah, I was so thinking. He's like, I was thinking the radical reformers were not the only ones who took passages like this too literally. No, and so yeah. he's says no. No, no, no. And he doesn't, so he doesn't mean to take it literally in that sense, but mm-hmm. that this has a fuller expression. So I love, I love this. There's, it's, there's a sense of, it's a greatest joy associated with following Christ, but, and the freedom from the earthly burdens. And so he's getting at that. Well, and you know, I, you know, we've been stressing the edge in Luke's gospel, but you know, there's, there's joy there as well. Right. And so I like the fact that he combines those two. Yeah. 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 And then he pulls, um, notes that this is uniquely Luke and showing how commitment to Christ is a serious commitment and not one filled with a life of simplicity. Um, and he's really concerned that people think that following Christ is, is, is a simple is a simple commitment. Mm-hmm. And he, he has this quote, and I love it in response to the Tower Parable. Quote, No man will ever become fit to serve Christ till he has undergone a long preparation for warfare. Mm. And um, the difference is that, as Calvin says, quote, Christians do not labor for a temporary building or a passing triumph. Mm. Yeah. So I thought those were cool. Yeah. Um, and then he admits that the portion regarding the king and the preparation for war could be misread um, and suggests that in this telling us that we should be prepared, that we will never turn our backs because of not having proper defense. Mm-hmm. In other words, he claims that our lives in Christ should be so committed that we are that we are both prepared and supremely confident in Christ's mission. Yeah, and I like that. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I mean, to me, that sounds a lot like you know that that your 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 identity is based on your alignment yep. with the kingdom yep. of God. Yeah. And there's no room for those who follow Christ only half-heartedly. Um, and right. the challenge is to be a true follower and acknowledge what that means. Yeah. Again, again, I want to say I think I think the man protested too much, you know, because he <laughs> well, he has a lot of the points that we right. talked about. But know. I think it's the context that it's been right. written that he's responding to, right? So, right. in terms of fourteen thirty three, um, quote: In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciples. Um, Calvin says that this this passage is absurd to read it literally. Absurd. He then makes an attack on monasticism, so there's that attack, to those who took it literally. He says, you do not have to leave humanity to become committed to Christ. According to Calvin, the self-denial is not in the actions taken, but in the way the heart responds, that all we have should be used in love and service to the Lord. Well, and we talked about this earlier, you know, um, the reformers' commitment to the Protestant work ethic yes. made it difficult yes. for them, I think, to really hear this passage and, and makes it difficult for us to hear that passage, too, because, I mean, we live in a world today right. where, I mean, who can who can give up everything you own? You, I mean, you... Can't right. just be homeless, right? You know, it just it's so the so the practicality of it. But I can understand I, I, why Calvin would but, say, you know, what he says about it. 
Right, right. But but practically we we don't give up. We we can't live. We cannot mm-hmm. live. And so I think Calvin's on the I th- Calvin's in the right space here too. Yeah. I mean, this is this is where I don't think Jesus is calling for people to 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 join a monastic community. No, I, I think you're I, I, right. I, I, it's I, not about it's not about literally whether you have nothing or whether you have a lot. Right. It's really more about um, your orientation to the kingdom of God yes, taking precedence I agree. over everything. I agree. Yeah. Yep. So then the discussion of salt. Um, clearly salt in the gospel is good, but it has been corrupted. If it has been corrupted, it's useless. Um, and the initial response is taken to the Roman Catholic Church, of course. He claims that the use of the church <laughs> to give the apostles unbounded liberty is an example of of how salt has become tasteless. In huh. other words, so he's he's interpreting this in terms of, of, of a church that has... has pushed beyond what the church is supposed to. Mm. Does that make sense? Well, so. yeah. When you, I mean, when you, when you talk about the apostolic succession, I mean, in a sense, you know, um, uh, giving, uh, giving the Pope sort of the, the authority of yep. an original apostle to, right. to make, you know, official statements on yep. behalf of the church that are seen as binding exactly. for all Christians. Exactly. You know, yeah, that makes sense. So it's, it is, it's, he's, he's claiming that, that the, the salt, the gospel given now it's, Watered now it's down just through watered all the down. years of tradition. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So that thought that was an interesting kind mm. of specifically Reformation attack. Sure, yeah. So all of this, what does it mean for modern day Christians? Well, for Calvin, um, the heartfelt commitment to Christ. It mm-hmm. is being and caring for humanity, but um, um, not eschewing humanity. It, it is a call to care for those around you in Christ's love, explaining that you are not hoarding, but giving of what is yours. You know, when, when, you, when, I, when I hear that, it makes me think of, of, of the monasteries, because while the individual monks had nothing, you know, the mon- as we talked about before, some many times most of the monasteries monasteries were wealthy, very wealthy, and had access to a lot of resources, mm-hmm. and which gave them a great deal of power. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Um, and this is in co- contrast to the Roman Catholic Church, the ascetic mentality, and that, or the utopian vision of the radicals. Right. Um, um, Anabaptists would take this literally sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, and they would literally give up all their personal possessions. They try to work in um, in this kind of um, commune style place, mm-hmm. and even to the point of, uh, you know, <laughs> in the most radical of the radical, not even claiming a family. So mm-hmm. this led to all kinds oh of my. bizarre, be- yeah, oh bizarre. My. Be- it- well, you know, you know, there is a there is a modern day descendant of of this tradition in what's called the Bruderhof communities. It's a it's a it's a group that started in Germany, but they still exist today. They publish Plow Magazine, Plow Quarterly Magazine, and they're committed to following the teachings of their their the founders. And and but it's it's based on basically a radical. Uh, living out of the Sermon on the Mount, and so, for example, you know, I was I was doing some research on them, and you know, they have these communities where they live together and they live in a communal lifestyle, but a person who's divorced can't can't, can't live there. Yeah, right? interesting <laughs> because it's contrary to the Sermon on the Mount. Yeah, so um, I w- I would be disqualified, but uh, <laughs> yeah, we still have them today. Right. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, and people still envision this today, and and I think becomes because it comes out of this tendency to want to read these things literally. Mm-hmm. Um, now, 
I, I'm going. I'm going to go in a little bit different space today than we've been before to introduce something new that maybe you haven't thought about. But for Reformation figures, it was important to be in the world and work in the world, not to separate off. Like um, the mo- like the monasteries, like the monasteries, did, right? right? And and this is a call of uh, of our Reformed tradition, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that and and. And that we we are people of this world, and that we are called to to serve to serve people. Well, you know, and, and when people have asked me about Calvin and the Reformed tradition, one of the things, one of the answers I've given, and there are a number of, I think, defining um, essentials of the Reformed tradition. But I think one of them is that whole idea of the stewardship of all of life. Yeah, exactly. And, and it's yeah, hard to yeah. be a steward of all of life if you're cutting yourself off from life. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so. Um, as we've talked before, there's a renewed respect for creation and the human being in creation, and that comes out of the Renaissance initially. Sin is something not to run away from, and it is something to tackle head on. Mm-hmm. So poverty, injustice, abuse are very much in the world of the Protestant reformer, and their witness is to change the status quo. So what are the interesting developments in the Protestant Reformation? And this is something I'm introducing new, is the rise of civil law that began to outweigh canon law. Mm, Yeah. And I'm bringing it up today because when you talk about being a disciple of Christ then and following Christ, what does that mean? Well, if it means being in the world, well, then how are we in the world responding in terms of, 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 of how we're how we're shaping it through through these well and pr- prior to the reformation canon law was was yes. how you understood yes. your place in the world right yes so i am far from an expert in this area but um, prior with the fall of the roman empire which which had roman law mm-hmm. um, the church began to be the source of all legal decision and this is of course partly how jesus had become known as a judge mm. adherence to the laws of christ were the first rules of canon law so during the reformation luther actually burned canon <laughs> law text which necessitated a new law code uh. of course remember no division of church and state they right. crafted a law code based on christian principles but came through the governing body the city or state rather than the church mm. yeah um and i found a nice article by kenneth pennington uh, the Protestant e- ecclesiastical law and a use commune, and uh, in the common common law, um, who looked at the relationship between common law, which is the basis of the English law code, and will ultimately impact our American sure. code and canon law. And he points out that the common law still has deep roots in canon law. Quote. Mm. All the reformers, to a lesser or greater extent, incorporated the medieval use commune shaped by canonical, Roman, and feudal jurisprudence into their legislation and legal thought. This is especially true of marriage and family law, but also true in other areas of law, such as court, court procedure, contracts, principles of law, social welfare, and education. You know, I, 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 when I think about that, you know, I was thinking about how... Um, you know, in, in, in our day, even some of the ways in which law, some of the processes of law, you can find them, uh, the pre- precedents for them in the Old Testament. Yeah. Yeah, you yeah. can. In you can. Torah. And I think what's important for us to understand today, that even though we have division of church and state, our laws in the United States ultimately come from a Western Christian worldview, sure. one that our Protestant reformers forged as they denounced the power of the Roman Catholic Church and redrew new codes based on peer review. Mm. Um, 
So this is huge, right? Yeah. This would not become a modern law code in the sense that we have today. Our code of discipline and the book of order, likewise, does come from the idea of a church-based law code. And while it does seem very outdated, its roots lie in the canon law tradition along with Roman law to some extent. It was kind of a... a, a, a it's kind of a, oh, the church still has some space that it needs to be able to make good decisions or, if you will, um, decisions that reflect what the church would have mm-hmm. within its processes. Um, and so I think I think what's really, really interesting is just how these are woven together. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's a concept today of that oh, if we have to divide church and state, but all of our all of our processes have these undertones of of Christian of Christian thought. I find I find an, uh, I don't know if this is right, but I find this kind of ironical because you know while the reformers were refusing the canon law of the Catholic Church, they essentially created their own that yes. was that was based right largely right. on right. catholic canon and law and it's still going to look really uh, frankly it's still going to look really medieval until yeah. we hit i'd say the 18th century yeah it looks, with the enlightenment I mean, with yeah. the enlightenment yeah um, but to say that it's all completely wiped away and that mm-hmm. it, it, you still have to recognize the principles of justice mm-hmm. um, and do have roots in uh, judeo christian traditions so. when I, when i think about how they were intent upon on creating this new sort of church law that was the new civil law. I'm kind of glad that they didn't pay a lot of attention to this passage because I shudder to think of what would happen if they had tried to write that into law. Uh, well, if they read it literally, right? right? right. But they didn't. I mean, I, I, I think that's the thing that, mm-hmm. that as when you get to your reformers, is they're like, this isn't a literal isn't literal at all, but it's it's really about about how you are in the world as a Christian, right? Yeah. And and that's how they are understanding right. this. I mean, right. so anyway, I'm introducing this for a first time, and just it's something we haven't brought up um, yet about being a disciple of Christ, but how that impacts, how this kind of Christian ethos sure. is going to impact uh, society at this time, and f- how a follower is a law-abiding person uh, and are they a law-abiding person via the traditional canon law or is there a new set and what does that mean mm-hmm. you know so mm-hmm. things are interesting here and as this guy says that even though they attempt to cut them apart they're still very much influenced sure. with each other sure so, yeah. yeah all right thanks Thank christy you. Hi, everybody. We're back, and we're really thinking about this passage, and really it's it, how, how, how we work with it in translation, how it comes to us when we read it straight out. Even Calvin himself says, I wouldn't take this too literally. And um, I, think we, I think there's challenges here, not because of what we've, what we've unpacked, because I think this one needs to be unpacked, but yet the tendency here to take this passage and not fully unpack it. And I think because, A, because the metaphors and the words keep coming at us. It's not like it's just one word. It's not just the one hate that I dealt with earlier in question, but it's really that the metaphors keep coming at us. So how, you know, how much are people willing to unpack it and are listening to the unpacking? And even once they hear it, are they not going back? And either, either A, 
trying to trying to apply it to some more radical interpretation or B telling you something like ah, well obviously the bible's irrelevant because this doesn't make sense within the context of our of our human existence so i don't know what do you think alan well and i love that i love that you know really kind of the question revolves to me around interpreting the bible literally and you know i remember um in some of the sort of denominational debates that were going on, especially when, when I was in the Southern Baptist world, there was a lot of reporting on it in the, in the, just the print, mm-hmm. you know, the regular media, not the church media, but, but regular media. And they always made it about whether or not you interpret the Bible literally or figuratively, which I thought was, was a, a, a a gross oversimplification of, of the issue. I think that's one of the challenges, right? Yeah, yeah. right. And and you're right. I think people tend to do that. They you, either you interpret the Bible literally or you interpret it figuratively. And I want my answer was no. I interpret the Bible literally because I believe interpreting the Bible literally means you interpret it in light of the way it was intended, in in light of the message right. that it was intended to convey. That's interpreting the Bible literally. So when you're looking at a psalm or a poem, right, right. you know you're not going to read it the same way as you are a historical narrative. But I think here's the challenge: is when people think literally, they're thinking within the context of their own first of all, taking an individual passage out of context Mm -hmm. and leading whatever literal understanding they have of each word, which gets us in trouble with hate, for example, on today's interpretation. And I would argue, so here's where I want to pick up on what you said about, you use the language of unpacking it. Mm -hmm. Most people don't want to unpack the Bible. They just want to read the surface meaning of of the words. And to me, I would say that is an overly literal kind of biblicism. It's an overly literal devotion to the words of the Bible without any kind of interest or effort in really trying to understand what the Bible is really teaching. Right. Yeah. And and that is a mistake. And that is a problem that you're right. It is a problem that we we deal with. I think it really cheapens the Bible too, actually, when you do that, because what I find so wonderful about scripture is that we grapple with it and we work through it and it talks to us as we're in different experience. And if you're going to come out and pretend it has some kind of one literal Right. It really takes away all of why I think it's here for us and, and who God is. I, right? I, can't, I can't tell you how many times I've interacted with seminary students when I was teaching who said they didn't see any need to, to study academically like at the PhD level because all the answers, all the questions have already been answered years ago, back in, way back in the Reformation. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> How's that for an hey. overly literal and simplistic approach? Yeah, and yeah. all the reformers read it obviously all the same. You know, that's, yeah. that's what Luther believed would happen, right? And it's not what happened. <laughs> no, it's not. No, it happened. And it's not what has happened today. I mean, I've been studying the Bible uh, personally, professionally, uh, academically for, you know, like 45 years. And and I still find new and exciting discoveries right. in the Bible. Right. And I think that's 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 the whole point of the, you know, we, re- we all have a pilgrimage with the Bible. And I'll have to admit, I mean, where you start is often with this very superficial, surface level, overly literal biblicism, right? right. Well, yeah. Or, or let me add this. You are also getting um, a situation where folks are on the, on the liberal side saying, right. we don't really need scripture at right. all. Right. Obviously, we can... We can 
we can refer to it kind of obliquely and really just create our own perception of what of what we think God's kingdom we is, just, and, and we start to we start to shift it and sh- reshape it. We can right? choose our own canon within the canon that really functions within our mm. our liberal enlightenment, post enlightenment, right. maybe even post Christendom right. uh, worldview. And as long right. as it can, long as it's consistent with our worldview, then we can use it. And if it's not, we just kind of ignore it. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And, and again, and that is. To me, that's doing a great disservice to the Bible as well. Well, it is, because then it, it, it takes away what our faith is about. But you do find, you know, how many churches now, I'm finding this really interesting, you need to go on a website and you go look up, well, we believe, we believe in the Bible, we believe, well, what, do you, what, is that, what, what, is, what does that mean? Does yeah. that mean... How many scripture readings do you have in, in your worship service? How many, or do you even have a scripture reading, or does your pastor just throw in snippets of, of scripture in, in, might, a, in a sermon or, that's about popular psychology? Yeah, or they may not actually unpack it in a, mm-hmm. in a mature way, right? No. They'll, or they'll insist that they'll insist that the King James Version is the only right version, and they they really don't begin to scratch the surface of the yeah. depth of meaning that's there. No, that's right. Um, in fact, they are interpreting an interpretation i mean that's well and 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 oftentimes misinterpreting an interpretation yeah i would argue that as well you know this passage especially brings out the need for carefully unpacking the bible and and that's what i mean that's a great way of talking about biblical interpretation or biblical exegesis Mm -hmm. looking into the historical context looking at a text like this in light of the full context of luke's gospel you have to is is, i hope that my segment you know uh made it clear that you can't read this passage without reading reading it across luke's gospel and and hearing the themes and the and the and the threads that are being brought together in this passage throughout luke's gospel well, what I what I love, you know, and I've been thinking about this. I think it's tempting to avoid these passages mm-hmm. because we don't want to unpack them. I think that does a, really a disservice. Um, I think that's. I like to go hear sermons when I can't just read it without really much thought and say, "Oh, it means this." I mean, this this requires unpacking, right. and I think this is the kind of way that we really get people into a a, a deeper layer of discipleship. Sure, actually, and sure. and and I think that's what they're hungry for. Well, and as I've said before, you know, one of the reasons why I would argue against someone who says, well, this is obviously from an earlier time period, and this is obviously, you know, place today, and we really don't have any use for this in our, in our current postmodern, post-Christendom world. Um, you know, I would say, no, we do, because, um, you know, one of the things we're seeing, I think, in our day, post-Christendom is driven by a lot of things, but I think one of the things it's it's driven by is our prosperity. Right. Oh, you are absolutely you know, right. I, I think yep. about, because I grew up in the 60s, and I think about the way things were in the 60s and the 70s, and about all the things that we have now, just the cars we drive and everything that's on them. I mean, mm-hmm. when I was growing up, I could work on my own car because engines were a lot simpler. Right. 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 And and now I wouldn't even think to touch it. And all all the sophisticated electronic equipment, all the all the emissions equipment, fuel injection, all the electronics in the car. You know, there were cars people bought in the 70s that didn't have a radio. Oh, yeah. There were cars that people bought that didn't have an air conditioner. Or cruise control. Right. Yeah, exactly. I remember when cruise control was a new thing. Right. Or 
uh, seat belts, I think, came in about 74. Well, required five, something yeah, like that. Yeah. I mean, but, so. but so, you know, the thing about it is, is, yeah, we still drive in a car, but we're not even realizing that the car we're driving is much more sophisticated than the cars we drove back then. Right. Microwave ovens, you know, they right. were, they were not, no, I mean, Nobody had a microwave oven when I was growing up. It didn't exist. I remember when we got our first one. I was yeah. maybe eight or nine, maybe something like that. Uh, cell phones. You know, yeah. cell phones were, were even 20 years ago. I got my first cell phone because I had gone through a divorce and I wanted my kids to be able to get a hold of me anytime. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't need a cell phone at that time. Right, right. You know, now it's a necessity, and and so I mean that's that's sort of been that's sort of been the 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 the, the push of technology right. and how it's redefined for us what is a luxury and what is right. a necessity. But all this stuff, I think, has made us think that the Bible's not necessary. Well, you know and I mean? and and to me, it's a perfect example of why we need a passage like this because one of the things that that Jesus says is you cannot serve God and wealth. You know, and right. and right. You know, I've said it many times that if we are not careful, our possessions come to possess us. They'll possess us. You, you are absolutely right. They'll possess us. And I keep thinking of the more we have, the more the more distracted we are from from listening to our 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 voice, our spiritual voice, from listening to nature. We're just we're just all boxed listening in. to God. Yeah, we're just. And I think part of that is because the more we have, the more we want. And so we yeah. occupy ourselves with getting what we want as opposed to occupying ourselves with seeking the kingdom. Right. And, and right. Jesus... Or what we have in Jesus. <laughs> Jesus made those, those, two, those two choices very clearly. Uh, you know, I don't, I, don't think it means, I don't think it means you have to be a monastery. I don't think it means you have to give up no. everything you have. I agree. Because you can't live in this world and do that. I, here's here's what I thought but when I was thinking control, about this passage. But what controls you, right? And, right, and right. I think that the big challenge is how often have have I I pick something material over something that would be more spiritual or sure. helpful. How often have I picked? And I think we've all done that. I think yes. that's a, that's part of our sinful existence. And how often is that not fulfilling? Whereas, well, and again, that's why I think we need a passage like this because, as I've said before, the tension, the edge of this passage, it, it, you know, we may not be able to ever perfectly fulfill something like this, but it, the tension pulls us always toward deeper commitment to Christ, always toward deeper commitment to the kingdom of God. Right. And that's the, if the Bible, if, that's the point of the Bible, right? Is right, to right. draw us closer yeah. to yeah, in yeah, our yeah, commitment yeah, yeah, to Christ yeah. and, and I think God. this passage actually really, really does that when, yes. we, when, we, when we unpack it. It does, so. it does when we unpack it. Mm-hmm. You know, and one of the things I was thinking about in terms of, okay, so what are people supposed to do with this, you know, in terms of practical application. I was thinking about Paul and what Paul says in Philippians chapter four. He says, you know, I've learned the secret of being content if I have plenty and if I have, don't have enough. Right. I've, I've learned to, to the secret of, of, of doing with and doing without. And, and so the idea is, is that your your financial situation or your what you own the kind of car you drive the kind of house you live in the kind of clothes you wear right. that's not where you define your identity 
right, right. Where you define your identity is in with your faith in Christ. And he says, I can do all things through him who gives me right. strength. Yeah, or right, many translations right. exactly. will say through Christ who gives me strength. You know, so that is the alignment, right? We align our lives. We had, our identity yeah. is based in yeah. Christ, not based on whether we have little or, or much. Not on my car. You know, my husband might say, ah, oh, my car is who I am. My car is who he is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, this is wonderful. Uh, he's, yeah. I mean, that's the way. I mean, I, that seems to be true of a large portion of society. Oh, yeah. Not only that, but you buy, you know, you buy the luxury edition car, you buy the best phone you can afford, you know, you have the the biggest, you know, highest quality resolution TV you can afford. For, for many women in particular, it's really a home. How mm-hmm. big is my home? How beautiful mm-hmm. is my home? How, mm-hmm. and, and the home becomes a definition for for who they are. And, 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 I, and I would say I know many people that fall victim to it. So I think this is really, really this, good. This passage really calls us back to to um, basing our identity yeah. in Christ, in the kingdom of God, yeah. which is about release. Because if you think about it, all of those things are forms of bondage. Exactly. They are. They are. <laughs> yeah. You know, you are absolutely right. Yeah. 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 Wow. Well, that's rich. Well, I hope that's help. That's helpful. I think so. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks, Christy. Thanks. That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen, listen for, for the, the word. word. Thank you.